0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, 2020 marks the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment recognizing women's right to vote, but Florida didn't ratify the amendment until 1969.
1: Florida in 1920, at the time of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, had fewer than 1 million residents.
0: We'll discuss the real first Thanksgiving that took place in Florida 55 years before the Pilgrims landed. There are actually only two written narratives of the
2: account that survive today. It's believed that Menendez might have a written narrative that survived
0: for at least a few decades, but it, it's lost now. We don't know where it is. And we'll talk about the Veterans Legacy Program at St. Augustine National Cemetery. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers.
3: This is my fight.
0: While the state of Florida would not ratify the 19th Amendment until 1969, the constitutionally guaranteed right for women to vote became federal law in 1920. Public historian and author Peggy McDonald recently participated in the panel discussion 100 Years of the 19th Amendment, Florida Women Breaking Barriers, as part of the Florida Historical Society virtual annual meeting and symposium. Dr. McDonald says that the idea of women's suffrage in America goes all the way back to the American Revolution. Abigail
1: Adams, in 1776, in March, wrote a letter to her husband, John Adams, who was working um, with the leaders of the revolution to shape the direction of the um, emergent United States. And she wrote a series of letters, but in March of 1776, she asked her husband John to remember the ladies in the new code of laws that they were certainly going to be working on. And this is the precursor to the constitution. So 1776, of course we have the Declaration of Independence, which implicitly John uh, Thomas Jefferson did not intend to include women in all of his vast writings. He never wrote about women, but uh, in 1776, the Articles of Confederation Uh, were um, the guiding document that carried the United States through the revolution. And Abigail Adams reminded John Adams that uh, he should do better, right? They should do better than their their ancestors and that all husbands would be tyrants if they could. Mm -hmm. So the the legal precedent for what was going on is known as coverture. And this comes from uh, English common law. So that goes back even farther to Mary Wollstonecraft, And she wrote in 1792, after Abigail Adams made her case to include women in the revolution, uh, she wrote from England that uh, the vindication of the rights of women. So the um, state of coverture, both in Europe and in the new United States, um, reduced women and their children to the status of the property of their husbands. So there was no concept, for instance, of... Um, uh, rape, marital rape, right? Women who, once they married, they lost all rights to property. They lost the rights to their identity legally. Um, and they even lost the rights to what would happen to their children. They had no control. If the marriage ended, the children were the property of the husband.
0: The Seneca Falls Convention in 1848 is described as the first women's rights convention. More than 300 people attended. The organizers planned an event to discuss the social civic and religious condition and rights of women
1: when we fast forward then to 1848 at seneca falls um what we see is not only a call for suffrage that's the most famous um uh result of the convention but also a challenge to coverture a push for equality. So in the Declaration of Sentiments that was signed by over a hundred of the more than 300 men and women who attended the conference, um, it mirrors the Declaration of Independence and women are making the case for equality to men. Um, What the precursor to the Seneca Falls Convention, however, was eight years before in 1840 when Uh, American and English women went to the World Anti-Slavery Convention in London. So again, 1840. And the American female delegates were not seated because American and English men refused to seat female delegates.
0: Although women were not seated at the 1840 Anti-Slavery Conference, they literally stood their ground standing in the gallery to attend the proceedings. Peggy MacDonald.
1: They couldn't be part of the formal process of the World Anti-Slavery Conference, but they stood and they wanted to be inserted into that moment. And they realized after that, that they needed a convention. They needed to work for their own rights. So this is where we have the, um, the birth of the women's suffrage movement in the broader movement to end slavery. However, as noble as that sounds, there's um, a long tension between white and black, male and female activists for suffrage. So, so sojourner Truth is an example of that. She was six feet tall, the same height as Frederick Douglass, Mm -hmm. had a very deep voice and had been owned by four different slave owners. And when she made her Ain't I a Woman speech, she was making the case that first of all, slavery often thought of as a male institution included women and children. And secondly, that the movement for women's rights included Black women. So there was a tension from the beginning between white women working for an end to slavery and working for women's rights, but at the same time not necessarily embracing equality for Black women.
0: Even with the passage of the 19th Amendment in 1920, African American women, particularly in the South, faced disenfranchisement. This discrepancy was addressed with new legislation in the 1960s. Peggy McDonald explains where Florida fits in to the larger narrative of the fight for women's rights.
1: Florida in 1920, at the time of the ratification of the 19th amendment, had fewer than 1 million residents. So it was um, the first colony often overlooked. People look at Virginia and Massachusetts, but as historian Michael Gannon wrote, by the time Jamestown was established, St. Augustine was well into urban renewal. <laughs> but as, a, as a Spanish colony, Spain treated Florida as a military output post. Unlike England, they didn't bring women and children to colonize, they just wanted to protect their interests and in the rest of Central and South America, North America from England. So Florida was not populated in the same way as the other early colonies, And at the time of statehood, 1845, so just three years before Seneca Falls, Florida was a thriving slave state. It was, um, at the time of the Civil War, about 51% enslaved, about 51% black and about 49% white. And in terms of women, the women were either enslaved or they were in the position of the slave mistress or they were in some other form of agricultural work. Uh, So Florida was rural, it was agricultural, and you didn't yet have the major centers of activism that you had in the North. Typically, people, well, I'm not gonna say people, Elizabeth Taylor, and not that one, wrote a history in the Florida Historical uh, Quarterly, an article that came out in the 1950s about Florida's suffrage movement, and she credited Ella Chamberlain with jump-starting it in 1892. So a little later than the Northern states, but um, she came from Iowa. And it's interesting because Mary Safford from Orlando was the president later of the Equal Suffrage League of Orlando and Florida, also president of the Iowa Equal Suffrage League. So there's this Iowa connection, right? Ella Chamberlain moved here in 1892 she really kickstarted the movement with her column in the Tampa Morning Tribune. So she used the power of the pen to push for women's rights. However, her view was that white women should be able to vote. Uh, she wrote that no woman should be represented by the votes of the Negro or the alien. So she had an anti-immigrant, anti-Black view. So this is the origins, right, of Florida's suffrage movement, something to keep in mind. The United Daughters of the Confederacy were also entwined, right? So when we look um, at um, other examples of of suffragists in Florida and across the nation, they were often also members of the United Daughters of the Confederacy. And that's the group that uh, put the Confederate statues all over Florida and all over the South.
0: While African-American women were excluded from efforts to legislate women's right to vote in Florida and throughout the South, progress did continue. Mary Safford of Orlando picked up leadership of the movement in Florida, where Ella Chamberlain stopped.
1: When Ella Chamberlain and her husband left the state after the great freezes of 1894 to 95, wreaked uh, havoc on their citrus crops. So by 1897, she left. And Elizabeth Taylor has written that, that was a, there was a lull in the movement after that. 1912, the Orlando mayor registered, uh, encouraged all freeholders to register to vote. A group of women went down to register to vote, and the city attorney informed them that they could not because the Florida Constitution prevented women from voting. Well, this led ultimately to Mary Safford, who was an experienced suffragist in Iowa, had been a um, Unitarian um, uh, minister. Where even to this day, if you think about it, there are not very many female ministers. Her, against her, her family's wishes, she became one. So she became the head of the Orlando and then the State Equal Suffrage League. So the focus was from the national, affiliating with the National Women's Suffrage Movement of Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony towards the Florida Equal Suffrage uh, Association. And um, so she was one person who really um, helped revive the movement Um, One of the most famous ones for her militancy was Mary Nolan, and she's another example of someone who was affiliated with the United Daughters of the Confederacy and the suffrage movement. She was born in Virginia in 1842 and then moved to Jacksonville, which became a hotbed for suffrage activity. Um, And she was known for being arrested multiple times, uh, once for um, actually burning one of Woodrow Wilson's speeches, in Washington D.C., and she was the only Florida suffragist to have her um, imprisonment narrative published. It was published in *The Suffragist* in 1917. And at the same time, uh, to be in her 70s and to be uh, repeatedly abused during the, that night of terror, as she wrote about, um, and to be to continue to be arrested was uh, notable for Florida.
0: Mary McLeod Bethune is perhaps best known as an educator who founded what would become Bethune-Cookman University in Daytona Beach. She was part of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's Black Cabinet and was the only African-American woman who helped to create the United Nations Charter as part of the U.S. delegation. Mary McLeod Bethune also fought for voting rights. Peggy McDonald.
1: Mary McLeod Bethune, her activities are overlooked. Ida B. Wells has just started to get attention in the national suffrage narrative for her um, refusal to march at the back of the 1913 suffrage parade in Washington, D.C., and she inserted herself between two white women and marched with the Illinois delegation. Meanwhile, in Florida and at the national level, uh, Dr. Bethune was um, instrumental in protecting not only black women's right to vote, but also black men's. She opened her school that became Bethune-Cookman University at night to teach reading classes, and uh, that would allow Black male and female voters to to, um, pass the literacy test and vote. She went on her bicycle door-to-door to collect money for a poll tax fund to help Black voters pay the poll tax. And she established the Florida Federation of Colored Women's Clubs because the largest organization for women in Florida, the Florida Federation of Women's Clubs, was uh, white only, as most states uh, were segregated by race. So we really can't say enough about Mary McLeod Buffoon's efforts during the suffrage movement and her work for civil rights and voting rights.
0: May Mann Jennings was an influential woman in Florida history. She was assistant to her father, who was a state senator and state representative, she was Florida's first lady as the wife of Governor William Sherman Jennings. Mayman Jennings was also a strong advocate for women's voting rights.
1: Mayman Jennings was president of the Florida Federation of Women's Clubs and in 1915 convinced that 10,000 member organization to support women's suffrage. And they lobbied the Florida legislature to amend the state constitution to allow women to vote and to support the 19th Amendment, known as the Susan B. Anthony Amendment, to um, have an amendment to the U.S. Constitution.
0: Tennessee became the 36th state to ratify the 19th Amendment on August 18, 1920, making the recognition of women's right to vote official. On May 13, 1969, the Florida state legislature had a symbolic vote ratifying the amendment. We spoke with public historian and author Peggy McDonald who recently participated in the panel discussion 100 Years of the 19th Amendment Florida Women Breaking Barriers as part of the Florida Historical Society Virtual Annual Meeting and Symposium. That conversation can be seen at myfloridahistory.org/annualmeeting. My This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brookmarkle. The Florida Historical Society Press publishes a variety of books about our state's diverse history and culture. You can get your Christmas shopping done early at fhspress.org. A membership in the Florida Historical Society also makes a great gift. Find out more at myfloridahistory.org. time in the season
4: where family and friends gather near to offer a prayer of thanksgiving for blessings we've known through the year to join hands and thank the creator now when thanksgiving is due this year when I count my
0: Thanking the Lord, He made you. Fifty five years before the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock, Spanish colonists in St. Augustine shared a feast of thanksgiving with Native Americans in Florida. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, you have some rare books here that indicate that the real first Thanksgiving took place right here in Florida. Yeah, it's really an interesting uh, point
2: in in the history of the Spanish presence in Florida. And most people who are interested in Florida history and and scholars are familiar with the 1565 Spanish expedition of uh, Pedro Menendez de Aviles when he established uh, St. Augustine. But what's sort of an interesting side note is that as part of that expedition, when they first met with the Native people um, and established the town, they held a small mass, a small service, on the site that is now St. Anastasia Island. So it's actually on the barrier island of where modern St. Augustine is now. But they also dined with the Indians and had what we would consider sort of the first Thanksgiving, if you will, sort of the first meeting and actual sitting down at a table and and breaking bread, if you will, with the Native peoples of, of Northeast Florida.
0: One of the sources we have for this real first Thanksgiving story is from revered Florida historian Michael Gannon, who passed away in 2017.
2: Yeah, that's right, and, and Dr. Gannon has for decades really been the, the preeminent scholar uh, on not only the Catholic presence in in Florida, but also the early colonial presence, and uh, he published a book in the 1960s entitled uh, "Cross in the Sand," which is still—it's actually still in print today—and it's one of the best sources for the uh, the history of the Catholic and Spanish presence in Florida. But he uh, actually went through a lot of the original um, original accounts and pieced together what this first Thanksgiving dinner would have actually looked like, and he used a couple of sources uh, that we know of. There are actually only two written narratives of the of the account that that survive today. It's it's believed that uh, Menendez might have uh, a written narrative that that uh, survived for at least a few decades, but it, it's lost now. We don't know where it is. But one of those accounts was from the uh, priest who was on the expedition, Father Francisco uh, Lopez, who there's actually a statue of him up in, in St. Augustine now. Um, the other gentleman was uh, a doctor, Dr. Gonzalo Soles de Meras, and he was actually Pedro Menendez's brother-in-law. And he was the official recorder of the of the expedition and it 's interesting because both men picked up different aspects of the of the meeting, for instance, Father Francisco Lopez obviously officiated the the ceremony, and he talks about the Indians mimicking the, the Spanish you know when they were bowing down in front of the cross and According to his account, it seemed like the Indians were, were intrigued and interested, but weren 't really sure what was going on. Uh, but in the Solas de Meras account, he actually talks about uh, Menendez uh, feeding and dining with the Indians, and then uh, after the Mass was said, they dined, and then Menendez sort of went on his way, and, and they went about continuing to build the fort at St. Augustine.
0: Now, just as an interesting uh, sidebar, uh, the, one of the copies of The Cross on the Sand by Michael Gannon that you have in the uh, Florida Historical Society archive is actually uh, originally inscribed to uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas.
2: Yeah, that's right. And that's another kind of interesting aspect of of one of our items in our collection. Yeah, it was it was uh, looks like it was given to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas sometime in the late 1970s, 1978. Although the book we have is a second edition. So it was printed in 1967. Marjorie Douglas must have uh, ran into him at some point and happened to have the book. And and he wrote a little inscription here that said, uh, with the admiration and kindest wishes of Michael Vegan. and, And it's dated here November 16, 1978.
0: Now, as you mentioned, Michael Gannon uh, quotes Father Francisco Lopez, the priest who gave the first mass in St. Augustine just before this Thanksgiving feast in 1565 and and other contemporary sources as well. Gannon was using uh, the primary source material, as you said, but you also have some of that in the archive.
2: Yeah, that's correct. Um, I had mentioned the uh, Solas de Menas account. And it was originally published in Spain and in the Spanish language shortly after the expedition, 1567, and it was lost for centuries. And it actually wasn't fully published until 1893, but it was still published in Spanish. But in the 1920s, a uh, historian, a Florida historian by the name of uh, Jeanette Thurber Connor, who was a member of the Florida State Historical Society, another contemporary organization with the Florida Historical Society, translated the entire account. That translation is what Dr. Gannon used as a primary source. And it is, to this date, as far as I know, it's the only English translation of that eyewitness account.
0: Now, historian Michael Gannon has said that the real first Thanksgiving in Florida consisted of a stew of salted pork and garbanzo beans with ship's bread and and red wine. I think I'm going to stick with uh, the Pilgrim's menu this year. Yeah, I have to agree with you
2: there. I think the canned cranberries uh, sound a little bit better than uh, the peas and and hard bread.
0: (laughs) All right. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is director of educational resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa.
4: And I'll go on my way Grateful for all of the years Thank you for all that you gave me For teaching me what love can do Thanksgiving Day for the rest of my life Thanking the Lord He made you Thanksgiving Day for the rest of my life, thanking the Lord who made you.
0: This is Florida Frontiers. November is Veterans History Month. Holly Baker is Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. She has this report on the work of the Veterans Legacy Program at St. Augustine National Cemetery.
3: The History Department at the University of Central Florida recently partnered with the Department of Veterans Affairs to bring veterans' stories to life through the Veterans Legacy Program. Dr. Scott French is the Director of Public History at the University of Central Florida. He told me more about the Veterans Legacy Program.
5: The Veterans Legacy Program is an initiative of the National Cemetery Administration to connect communities to the cemeteries, the national cemeteries that were created for veterans. And they've asked us here at UCF in the history department to help them and to bring this project into classrooms, into K-12 classrooms, into our own classrooms here at UCF. And we've been exploring how to use new technology and how to improve our storytelling techniques.
3: UCF's Veterans Legacy Program team first worked at Florida National Cemetery in Bushnell, Florida, one of 135 national cemeteries overseen by the National Cemetery Administration. They took students on a field trip to Florida National Cemetery, created an interactive website that features veteran biographies written by UCF students, and they created K-12 classroom materials about the veterans there. Now they're uncovering the stories of veterans in St. Augustine National Cemetery. Dr. Scott French.
5: St. Augustine is a really cool historical site. It has this amazing long history that predates the creation of the National Cemetery system. It became a cemetery in the early 19th century, and some of the earliest burials there date to the Seminole War. Our work there has involved researching the people who are buried there and uh, telling their stories, the hidden histories that are buried in the cemetery.
3: Students at the University of Central Florida wrote biographies about veterans in St. Augustine National Cemetery. Gramon McPherson, a graduate student in the history program at UCF, wrote several of the veteran biographies for the Veterans Legacy Program. He told me about the importance of remembering the sacrifices of African-American veterans. There are about 55 black veterans that we focused on. The whole concept was about African-American veterans, the forgotten veterans. African-Americans, uh, their service obviously oftentimes was dismissed. African-Americans had a lot to prove. Even after the war, a lot of their service was still not really regarded by broader broad society. And so this is our way in a sense of trying to honor their memories. My father my grandfather I served in the military. And I have uncles who are currently serving in the military. So it's an honor for me to be able to honor that legacy, both as an African-American and as a son of a veteran. So I'm just happy that I was able to be part of this again. Dr. Scott
5: French. One of our partners on this project, the Center for Humanities and Digital Research, and Amy Giroux, who is a computer specialist, has been looking at records of African American burials in St. Augustine National Cemetery and what she was able to find were a considerable and substantial presence of African Americans and that's important to us because we want to highlight the participation of African Americans in U.S. wars and conflicts, their, their uh, important contributions, and bring them into the stories that we tell.
3: The work of the Veterans Legacy Program shows that every veteran has a story and every stone in St. Augustine National Cemetery represents a life and a sacrifice that should be remembered. To read the biographies of veterans from Florida National Cemetery and St. Augustine National Cemetery, visit www.vlp.cah.ucf.edu. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. You can also listen as a podcast. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Bendy Biasi and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. From all of us at the Florida Historical Society, have a great week and a very happy Thanksgiving. I'm Ben Brookmarkle.